Last week, Governor Tim Waltz issued a stay-at-home order for Minnesotans not doing essential work. It runs through April 10th. He said that without such aggressive action, some 74,000 Minnesotans potentially could die of COVID-19, and the state's intensive care units would likely be overflowing by May 3rd. But by following the stricter measures, we could reduce person-to-person contact by 80% and delay the peak of the disease by over one month. This would buy us valuable time to beef up our medical response capabilities and potentially decrease deaths by 20,000 people. But where do all those numbers come from? The answer is mathematical modeling. More specifically, infectious disease outbreak modeling being done by epidemiologists both here at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health and the Minnesota Department of Health. I'm John Finnegan, Dean of the U of M School of Public Health, and we thought that since these numbers inform public policy and therefore have a significant impact on our daily lives during this pandemic, that it would be important to explore how this modeling works, what it can and can't tell us, what it reveals, not just about coronavirus, but about our healthcare system and about us. Today is April 3rd, 2020, and this is Episode 3, Why Models Matter. Just how busy these days are the experts who are trying to project the trajectory of the coronavirus pandemic? Well, check this out. Hi, is this Eva? Yes, this is Eva. Sorry. <laughs> it's okay. I, I would expect this is a very busy time for you. It is. <laughs> yeah. You know, that makes me think, you know, if you look back at 2019, Eva. I wonder how, what was the average number of media interview requests you got in a month last year? Yeah, right. Zero. Zero. <laughs> and how about over the past week? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. 20? <laughs> it's a lot. Wow. Dr. Eva Enns is one of the principal disease outbreak modelers whose work at the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota and whose collaboration with the Minnesota Department of Health helped inform Governor Tim Waltz's three-tier social distancing plan, most notably a stay-at-home order for non-essential workers through April 10th, but also keeping public venues, restaurants, and schools closed through early May, as well as even longer restrictions to protect the elderly and the chronically ill. Dr. Enns, like everyone I interviewed for this podcast, wanted to make it very clear that mathematical modeling is not a crystal ball, not a prediction set in stone. It's about testing different assumptions, variables, or scenarios, if you will. Change just one variable, and you change the results. That's right. Yeah. So what we want to do is change all of these things and see, given the relationships that we've put into this model in terms of how infectiousness and contact rate and duration of infection and severity of infection and fatality of infection, how do all of those different numbers interact with each other to predict these peaks and the timing of peaks and the peak demand of healthcare? And so we're varying these inputs to get a sense of how do these dynamics play together because it's it's too complicated in our head, but we can do it, you know, computationally. And so that's what we're trying to do is to gain insight into how these things uh, depend on each other, then try to do some kind of um, prediction about what the impact will be of different interventions or, or policies. 
For example, running a scenario where we have plenty of ICU beds would give a very different result than a model in which you assume a shortage of ICU beds. Another example, should modelers assume most people will or will not practice social distancing? Well, they'll test both assumptions and see how each scenario changes estimates of the spread or peak of the pandemic. It's really as much about learning as it is about numbers. So I, I, I wouldn't be too wedded to specific numbers um, because those numbers will change and we need the flexibility to be able to revise those estimates and update our understanding of the virus, of healthcare context that we live in that is specific to our country or ideally our state. Um, but in terms of any specific numbers, I would uh, caution getting too attached to any of them. Here's what's fascinating about modeling. Yes, it definitely helps guide our decision-making, especially when it comes to finite resources. But isn't that revealing in itself that one of the most powerful countries in the world with the most expensive healthcare system in the world is facing limited healthcare resources? John Finnegan, the dean of the U of M School of Public Health, who opened this podcast, says modeling not only helps us visualize the scale of the pandemic, but also get a better sense of many of our vulnerabilities. Part of what it's underscoring is the fact that we are so underfunded in public health in the United States and in many other nations around the world. And it's also underscoring the fact that we have almost no surge capacity within our health care system. It's very expensive to maintain a lot of empty hospital beds. And yet when you need them, you need them. And that's the challenge that we're having right now. Lest you think that's just a public health expert protecting his own turf, consider this. We had a different coronavirus outbreak in 2003 called SARS, or Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. Vaccine funding for that outbreak dropped off when the number of cases dropped off. We had H1N1 influenza in 2009, and now we're in our second round with Ebola. Earlier this week, Dr. Greg Poland of the Mayo Clinic's Vaccine Research Group told a Star Tribune reporter, quote, these novel viruses will continue to emerge. Vaccine research is not a spigot you can just turn on and off. When we don't fund research into these things, look at what it's costing us as a nation and around the globe. End quote. I very much agree with, uh, with Dr. Poland. Again, John Finnegan of the University of Minnesota. This has been something that uh, people like Tony Fauci and Michael Osterholm and Dr. Poland and all kinds of other people in this field have said, this is going to happen. We can't be caught trying to do this kind of modeling on the fly like we are right now. We don't have the systems worldwide that allow us to really understand and see what's going on in the world of the virus. And so I think that this whole concept of looking at a very different approach to really monitoring what's going on with the issues of infectious disease and disease in general, whether it's chronic disease, on a global scale is absolutely necessary. In part, this different approach that Dr. Finnegan is alluding to is outlined in a report published last week by the Bloomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins University. The report, amongst other things, calls for the creation of a National Infectious Disease Forecasting Center, not unlike the National Weather Service, but for disease outbreaks. 
The reason given for why the U.S. needs such a forecasting center is what many see as a dangerous disconnect between the typically grant-funded academics who do this kind of work and an existing infrastructure not really designed to respond to something like COVID-19. Ideally, this agency would be continuously funded, highly flexible, research-driven, globally integrated, and hopefully apolitical. It certainly would be a monumental task to create such an agency, or expect it to have forecasting capabilities even remotely comparable to the 150-year-old National Weather Service. It also remains to be seen if American politicians and voters would support such a proactive investment in a prevailing healthcare economy that strongly favors rescue medicine over preventive medicine. Say nothing of the economy in general. There are those who, despite the fact that most sophisticated models support social distancing, think we need to get back to business as usual, or our economy will never recover. A lot of folks are sort of making this a binary decision. That's Stefan Gildemeister, the lead health economist for the state of Minnesota. You're either for the economy or you're for protecting people. And and I think this is, you know, incredibly reductionist because what we've learned from uh, from other pandemics is geographies that have had a vigorous response came out from the pandemic more economically viable. So uh, I think we should expect that will hold in this country as well. If you're prepared to reduce the impact of the disease through mitigation strategies, protecting people's lives, uh, creating a sense of shared purpose, uh, we, w- we would expect to be coming out at the back end better than we would otherwise be. It's a stark reminder that not only does modeling expose our systemic vulnerabilities, but also some of our personal ones. Gildemeister feels scientific literacy is problematic in the U.S., making it difficult for many people to understand why models matter. He says it places a premium on clear and transparent communication when it comes to things like mathematical modeling. And he's noticed another challenge as he's tried to help people understand the inherent uncertainty involved in modeling a brand new epidemic. Uncertainty, I think the the second layer there is some to do with how humans and different humans differently process risk. How do we approach a known risk or an unknown risk? And and so the notion of your low probability of death translates into really little concern over the pandemic and more immediate concern over the loss of income or the loss of freedoms of movement of those things. So those that's that's really complex and and something we struggle with as we communicate about uh, about the findings. Over the next several months, we'll be hearing about many different models, often associated with a wide range of predictions, some which sound more optimistic, others more pessimistic. And this can be confusing and make it difficult to know how to make sense of it all. But we would do well to remember some key points. We've only known about this virus for just over four months. Even though our knowledge is growing daily, if not hourly, we don't yet have all the scientific information we need. That's where modeling comes in. New information will spur new models that will lead to new insights. But it's not one size fits all. And that will require some patience on our part as models become more refined 
and lead to more clear-cut and effective policies and recommendations. Perhaps most importantly, even though many models have shown a wide range of results, the upshot from all models has been the same. We are facing an unprecedented challenge requiring an unprecedented response, and social distancing can dramatically improve our prospects. Modeling matters because, you know, I, I realize it's not a crystal ball, but it's as close as we get in many respects to being able to prospectively plan for what's coming. Dr. Brad Benson is an internist, pediatrician, and chief academic officer for the M Health Fairview Healthcare System, a system made up of 10 hospitals, 60 clinics, and about 34,000 employees. So, from a health system standpoint, you know, we really need to think about how many beds that we have available, how many nurses, how many ICU beds, how many uh, ventilators, how much personal protective equipment. And, you know, we're in a scenario where we're making very serious decisions and we need as good of a predictive model as we can get. Shooting from the hip or going by our past experience doesn't cut it in a situation like this in any way, shape or form. This podcast is a production of the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota. For more information on coronavirus, as well as some links we highly recommend, visit our website at sph.umn.edu. Today is April 3rd, 2020, and the number of confirmed COVID-19 cases worldwide has just passed the 1 million mark, nearly double what it was one week ago. About one in four of those cases are in the United States. Thanks for listening and take good care of each other.